Welcome back again to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I'm Mark Melton, the deputy editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. In this episode, we'll speak with Joseph Leconte, a senior editor for Providence and an associate professor of history at King's College in New York. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, which is about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's experiences in the First World War. For our latest issue of the print edition, which should be hitting mailboxes soon, Joe wrote an article chronicling the fall of the Soviet Union. He begins with Ronald Reagan's prediction that communism would collapse and the USSR would fall upon the trash heap of history. President Reagan made this prediction in June 1982 during an address at the British Parliament in Westminster Palace. On Christmas Day 1991, Gorbachev resigned as leader of the Soviet Union and the flag flew over the Kremlin in Moscow for the last time. On the next day, 25 years ago today, as we released this podcast, the Supreme Soviet formally declared that the Soviet Union no longer existed. Hence why we are releasing this podcast today. So I want to thank Joe Lacante for being in the office here in Washington, D.C. at the IRD in our Providence uh, back office here talking about foreign policy. Joe, would you like to give us an introduction on what your article is about? Yeah, Mark, thanks again for having me. It's great to be with you. 25 years ago, this December, will mark the collapse of the Soviet Union, a 70-year experiment in Marxism-Leninism that comes to a more or less peaceful conclusion. And one of the reasons I think it's important to mark that moment is because there were very few statesmen who anticipated it, uh, much less worked strenuously against it uh, in those waning years. And one of them, of course, was Ronald Reagan. So Reagan's uh, prophecy, if we could use that word, uh, that the Soviet Union would collapse, he made that prophecy in 1982 in a speech at Westminster to the British people and to the world, that we were gonna leave, the West was gonna leave the Soviet Union on the ash heap of history. And when he made those uh, comments, he was excoriated by the foreign policy establishment, by the liberal elites in the media and the think tank world as a utopian, as a militant utopian. Uh, But within a decade, uh, the prophecy came true. And why did he come to this conclusion that the Soviet Union would collapse? It would be on this ash heap. And why, and what did the people at the time say? Were people, you know, assuming that the United States and the Soviet Union yeah. were equivalent, or were they you know, one morally superior than the other? Yeah, let me read you a few lines here. Okay. For, if I could, a couple of quotations Absolutely. from the quote-unquote experts right at that time in 1982 in the midst of Reagan's prediction. I mean, you had people uh, like the MIT economist Lester Thoreau. He said it was a vulgar mistake to think that most people in Eastern Europe are miserable. A vulgar mistake. All of these people who are suffering under Soviet communism, desperately poor, no uh, political economic freedom. Uh, th- that is typical of the view of many on the left of what was actually happening. Another quotation here from Columbia University's uh, uh, professor, Bialer. He insisted at the same time, 1982, the Soviet Union is not now nor will be during the next decade in the throes of a true system crisis, for it boasts enormous unused reserves of political and social stability that suffice to endure the deepest difficulties." Quote unquote. Uh, Let me read you one more here. Uh, Historian Arthur Schlesinger. Each superpower has economic troubles. Uh, Neither is on the ropes. So this was essentially the conventional wisdom. And all of these characters uh, here in the academy, in in the media, Uh, they assumed that Reagan was living in a fantasy land, in a right-wing fantasy land. Well, it turns out that Reagan was spot on. 
He was so right about the internal weaknesses of the Soviet Union. And this goes really to your question, what did Reagan understand about the Soviets that the Soviet apologists uh, wouldn't understand? He understood that at its core, Marxism-Leninism was a soulless philosophy, uh, not only because it was by definition atheistic, but because it did not respect human nature. It didn't respect the aspirations of the human person. It didn't respect human dignity. So how could you possibly build a successful political economic system on a lie, on a fundamental lie about the human condition? That's what Reagan understood. He understood the Soviet Union in moral and spiritual terms, as well as political and economic terms. That's something I think, Mark, that the materialists, the secularists, the critics of Reagan couldn't get because they were tone deaf to the moral and spiritual dimension of the thing. With that, like the quote about Eastern Europe, yeah. to say that they are miserable is Yeah, a vulgar mistake to think that they're actually miserable. I mean, what, what was going on at that moment? I, I, behind the Soviet... Uh, behind the Soviet uh, Union the, so, in Eastern Europe. Soviet, what was going on? Well, uh, bread lines. Bread lines stretching for blocks. People having to get up early in the morning to wait for the, the, the most meager of rations. That's why you had uh, this, this black humor uh, circulating in, in the Soviet Union. Comedians who were really subversive in their humor. The humor was about the incredible economic deprivation. And Reagan loved to collect these jokes. I think uh, every day or every week or so, he'd have people collect the jokes from the, the dissidents behind the Iron Curtain about how desperate the economic situation was. In all of the Soviet bloc countries, there were deep economic problems. Reagan knew that. To a degree, our CIA knew that. Uh, but the people uh, who should have known, who would take these trips to Moscow and dine at the Western, uh, Western only restaurants, you know, specially tailored for Western visitors to, uh, to essentially help them to believe the lie. Uh, everybody outside of, outside of Reagan's White House, it seems, was duped into swallowing whole the Soviet propaganda about what was actually happening. That reminds me a little bit of the necessity to uh get outside of the capital, get outside of your hotel yeah. when you go to these places. Yeah. And that's one of the things when I, I used to live in Europe and I taught in France for a year, I lived in Scotland, did my graduate degree, but yeah. when I did my teaching, my mom called it a quaint town, but when you're 22 years old, you don't want to live in a quaint town. <laughs> you want to live in Paris or someplace exactly. that's a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 But that experience for me at least opened up my eyes of how everyone else lives. When you open up a newspaper and you read something and it doesn't match what you see on the ground, you have to throw it yeah. away. Yeah. And the same thing in Scotland where my family, you know, I have a lot of cousins who are dairy farmers and regular Scottish people and to go and see them yeah. and get out of St. Andrews yeah. where yeah. it's yeah. basically a tourist town. It's lovely. <laughs> it's awesome. Go visit it. But yeah. would you agree? Well, this is the, uh, this is the kind of the great thing about getting to work with young people at the King's College there in, in New York is uh, they are so well-traveled for their age. So many of them have been all over the place, not just this country. They've been all over the world, some of them, by the time they're 19, 20, 21, 22. It's, it's so much cheaper to travel now. Uh, I think absolutely, yes. You know, uh, I'll give you one little example. I was flying back from uh, beautiful Naples, Italy, flying into London here over the summer. I was sitting next to an Italian guy, an architect, and he told me that uh, he lives in London now. He, was, he had been flying back to visit his family in Naples, Italy. Why is he living in London, working as an architect in London? He can't get work in Italy as an architect. He can't make a living. The economy is so bad. And that's part of the EU, the European Union. And why? So he's, here he is in Britain, which has left the European 
Union, which everyone is still, uh, so many people and Europeans and others are, are so fearful of what's going to happen to Great Britain as a result of, of leaving the European Union. Well, here's a guy who wants the economic strength and opportunity that is true in Great Britain, that he, see, he sees his future there. He's been there for about a decade living and working in Britain. So it was a fascinating, you know, first person perspective. It's anecdotal, absolutely. So I'm not going to make too much of it, but it means something that mm -hmm. you have a guy who has who's educated. He's an architect, and he can't find good work in his home country that he loves in Italy, and he's living in Great Britain. So yeah, you got to get out and yeah. about and talk to real people. And so, uh, to get us back to the topic of <laughs> Soviet Union yeah. and the collapse, so we need to uh, get out. And these people were not, you think, getting out as much. They were going to the Moscow yeah. nice. But Reagan was and... meeting with the dissidents. That's right. part of the reason he would read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He would read the dissidents and and meet with them, uh, and 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 of course champion their cause. Mm -hmm. uh, but the problem is the the, the liberal in intelligentsia, the left wing. They weren't meeting dissidents. They were in their own enclaves. They're gated. They're intellectually gated communities, uh, immune to human suffering in a real way. I think uh, this is to Ronald Reagan's credit. The people around him, he had a real heart and burden for ordinary people, uh, and their their aspirations for freedom, and dignity. And I think, uh, unfortunately, so many on the left to this day do not share that aspiration, that understanding of people's hopes, uh, at a basic level. So yeah, that was part of Reagan's uh, gift. Uh, and insight uh, as well. But I think it, it really does go back to a political philosophy grounded in something deeply moral and at the end of the day Christian. I think Reagan had a Christian sensibility that helped him to understand what were the fatal weaknesses of the Soviet Union at the core and they were moral and spiritual weaknesses. There's a line here I want to read you from Gorbachev. Go ahead. When Mikhail Gorbachev surrendered uh, power, you know, stepped down declared the end of the Soviet Union. It was in Morocco. Mo, you're too young. You, you weren't even born then, probably, at that, at that stage of the game in, in uh, uh, 25 years ago. Uh, I, I was how old not you? old enough to remember okay. things. But it was just, it was as if this, uh, you were reading some tabloid newspaper headline on Soviet Union disintegrates. Well, here's the line from Gorbachev, the speech that he gave December 25th, Christmas Day. This society, speaking of Soviet society, this society has acquired freedom it has been freed politically and spiritually, Gorbachev says, and this is the most important achievement that we have yet fully come that we have yet fully to come to grips with, and we haven't come to grips with it because we haven't learned to use freedom yet. But the fact that Gorbachev would describe it not only as a political freedom but as a spiritual freedom is kind of remarkable. I, I wonder if his meetings with Ronald Reagan helped to alert him to the spiritual dimension of the struggle in the Soviet Union, because Reagan talked about it all the time, all the time. And it seems like at this time, when Reagan is giving the speech, there's this massive moral equivalence. Yeah, and, uh, yeah convergence was the word they used. Right, do you uh, see that today? Well, um, certainly among the, uh, the political left in this country, um, and the religious left as well. They are so obsessed with America's shortcomings. And we have our shortcomings, Mark, and we know what they are. We don't have to hide them, we know what they are. But we have a great reforming tradition in this country, democratic reform, uh, which helps us immensely. But the political and religious left are so obsessed with America's shortcomings that they almost see no real difference between the United States and what we stand for and say ISIS, the Islamic State, or Saudi Arabia, or Russia. And I think that is a, that's not just a conceptual problem on the left. That is a deep moral problem 
on the left. And our friends, uh, when we think of some of our historical friends like Reinhold Niebuhr, who started out life as a socialist and moved further and further toward the center and center right as the flawed, that flawed equivalence thinking began to show up in the 1930s uh, as the United States was facing the fascist threat. People on Niebuhr's left making this moral equivalence. The United States as a, as a democratic capitalistic state is no better than the Soviet Union, no better than Nazi Germany. Those arguments were being made. It reminds me of the uh, Christian doctrine of sanctification, mm -hmm. where at least from my more Presbyterian reformed background and also going to Baptist colleges, where this idea of I'm still a sinner, but God is still working through me. And yeah. so I don't know how much secular society understands that concept of yeah. I can still yeah. be sinning yeah. in different ways, but still yeah. I'm being sanctified. And I think, I don't know if there's a parallel between that and the moral equivalence of different societies, but... You know, bringing it back maybe to the conversation, right. at that point in the conversation, I think that's something that Reagan understood about America, that had this great reforming tradition, and that if you could unleash that behind the Iron Curtain, and that's one of the, then who knows what could happen. I think it's one of the reasons Reagan was the first leader, political leader, to back the solidarity movement in Poland uh, around 1980, 81, 82. And so you have Lech Walesa, a democratic reformer, uh, a Catholic. He has the Pope, Pope John Paul II, uh, on his side. And he's launching this solid, this trade union movement resisting communism in Poland. Again, the nattering nabobs of negativism, as Pat Buchanan called them, on the left. Uh, they see no hope for solidarity. This, they should just g give it a rest. Communism is going nowhere in Poland. Those voices were out there. They were in Reagan's ear. And Reagan said, no, we can't let this solidarity movement pass without trying to assist it. We may never have a chance like this in our lifetime. That was his line to his advisors in 1980. And so he gave, he directed the CIA to give assistance, material assistance to the solidarity movement throughout the 1980s, working with Margaret Thatcher, who had exactly the same vision. Uh, and that helped to keep solidarity alive. I think it was Lech Walesa who said, or, or, or one of his colleagues who said that uh, Ronald Reagan was the, was the father of perestroika, uh, the, the whole idea of restructuring in the Soviet Union, his determination to face down Soviet communism and encourage democratic reform. But Mark, I think it goes back to this idea of Reagan's understanding that reform, civil society reform, democratic reform at the grassroots level can unleash revolutions. And he saw that in solidarity and he was right because 1989, the year of the century, the unraveling of the Soviet Union begins in Poland. It begins in Poland. In 1989, all of those countries, those East European countries, were firmly in the Soviet bloc, Soviet command and control in the, at the beginning of 1989. By the end of 1989, they had all escaped from Soviet control and democratic revolutions had taken hold in every single one of them, almost all of them peacefully. That was absolutely remarkable and unprecedented, and Reagan helped to instigate that change. So with the Solidarity Movement, how do you think those events would have unfolded if they did not have the material assistance? That's a terrific what-if question that historians do puzzle over, because if Poland's democratic revolution had been crushed, if the baby had been strangled in the crib, which is what the Polish leaders wanted, it's hard to see how those other democratic revolutions would have taken hold in 1989 because they were watching the Polish example. When Poland uh, voted the communists 
out of office. They were all thrown out. Literally every communist was thrown out. And so these democratic reformers take over and you have the first democratically elected leader, Lech Walesa. The example that set for the rest of those East European countries was so powerful. It was so inspiring that it helped to trigger those other revolutions in East Germany, of course the Berlin Wall, in Czechoslovakia. I mean, the dominoes fell in reverse and the Poland was the beginning. So uh, Lech Walesa would say that if, if Reagan, and he did say, if Reagan had not been uh, active, engaged in supporting that revolution, he thinks the whole map of, of Europe would have been different still. And how do you see the Poland event affecting the Soviet Union? Well, that's a terrific question. What happened when, when all those nations went their own way in 1989, then what you began to see uh, was, a, was a pushback among the hardliners in the Kremlin. They thought Gorbachev is just losing his grip and we're losing our grip on our empire, which, which was, was indeed happening. So the hardliners push back, as, as you might recall, they stage a coup, they arrest Gorbachev, he's under house arrest, but then uh, the coup uh, plotters themselves are pushed back. It's a clumsy coup. The coup fails, Gorbachev is restored uh, in office, but the whole regime is so weakened and so embarrassed. And now you have democratic reformers coming into their own in the Soviet Union. And then what's gonna happen is the, the republics, the Soviet republics themselves begin to vote for reform. Those republics breaking away, Ukraine breaking away, Russia, the Re Russian Republic breaking away from the Federation, from the Communist Federation. That only happens, Mark, because of the 1989 revolutions. One depends on the other, no question about it. So what do you think the lessons are for Americans today? That's a fabulous, huge question. We can only scratch the surface on it. I think don't despise the greatness of small beginnings because the revolution in Poland, the democratic revolution in Poland was a very small, uh, modest, uncertain, embattled democratic revolution. And look what it led to. We'll never know, here's a great what if to partially answer your question. We'll never know what, how the Middle East might have looked differently today if the Iranian revolution under Barack Obama's watch, that democratic revolution uh, in what, 2009, 2010, they were protesting the fact that their, their votes had been just disregarded. They wanted reform and the regime cracked down and people were being beaten up and shot right there in Tehran. And what did the American president do? He stood aside. He stood aside in such a way that the democratic reformers were, were out there waving signs saying, Obama, are you with us or are you with the regime? Well, we'll never know what the Middle East might look like today if the democratic revolution had begun in Iran. We'll never know. That's a great way. So don't despise the greatness of small beginnings and all that and try to assist as best you can those yearnings for genuine democratic freedom. Figure out who the real democratic reformers are and openly back them. You're going to be accused of meddling no matter what happens. Help those democratic performers in every possible way that you can. Because once that genie is out of the bottle, uh, we don't know where it can go. To pull in, like what specific recommendations would there be to uh, support them? Like some things that might have worked for Reagan or yeah. some that did not work for Reagan? Or do we know which ones were? most effective. Well, you know, the analogies only break down, they break down pretty right. quickly, right? Because the democratic revolutions uh, in Eastern Europe, they were peaceful. Uh, there was a kind of a cultural Christianity to them as well, which helped keep them peaceful. They had a historical memory of democracy, of parliamentary democracy, of self-government. 
None of that really, of course, exists in the Middle East. It's part of the reason that the Arab Spring has turned into an Arab winter. You didn't have uh, the, the kind of the culture, the religious cultural basis, I think, for self-government, respect for the rule of law, natural rights, universal human rights. That just has not developed in, in Arab culture. Let's be frank about it. It hasn't developed. And so the Demo these revolutions for freedom, which I think you were, there were genuine democratic reformers uh, in the Arab uh, Spring, the Arab revolts, but they were not in large enough numbers. And they didn't get the backing of the religious leadership that they needed. Think about it, Pope John Paul II met personally with Lech Walesa, the Pope of Solidarity. Can you imagine the incredible moral credibility that gave that democratic leader at that moment in time, to have the, the, the Pope himself, the leader of the Catholic community, backing him? Uh, but these democratic reformers in the Arab world, they didn't receive that kind of religious backing. And that's a huge problem, to not have that kind of credibility from those religious authorities who have so much sway in the Arab world. So the analogies break down for all kinds of cultural and religious reasons. That doesn't mean we couldn't have done more. doesn't mean you shouldn't try to identify and help. Uh, but it means we face an immensely difficult task uh, in the Arab world in promoting democratic reform. That also reminds me of your book on... Uh the Hobbits and the Wardrobe and the Hobbit, a Wardrobe and a Great War. Yes, and uh, I think I remember you once mentioning how uh, the idea of the Hobbits, the small hands working on these things, the wheels of the world uh, are turning, but it's it's small hands who must must, must do that work because the eyes of the great are elsewhere, mm -hmm. and we just, we must put our hands to the plow. Mm -hmm. To kind of maybe borrow the image a bit and take it to the next step, we got to we got to put our hands to the plow as mm -hmm. men and women of faith, of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. We never know how that small work is going to have such an important uh, cultural, political effect, spiritual effect. We can't see that. We're called to be faithful. We're not called to uh, to act in, in, the, in public life based on what we think the outcome is going to be. We're called to act because we feel moved uh, by God's Spirit, by our conscience, by the Word of God, to act as men and women of integrity at, at the moment of crisis. Yeah, I love that phrase from it's Ecclesiastes, right? Where, you know, put your hands to the plow, don't look to the skies, whether it's raining or the drought, and you don't know which product will work best. Yes. Well, thank you very much for coming in and speaking with us about this topic. And if you don't subscribe to the Providence print edition, be sure to go online. There's a big red button at the top of the page, ProvidenceMag.com, and uh, subscribe. It's not that much. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me.